Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to Deutsche Grammophon's international podcast series. I'm Sarah Willis, and I just love podcasting with the Yellow Label's star-studded cast of musicians. My guest on today's podcast has been described as one of the most essential, daring and intense artists of our time. I admire her so much because of her fantastic playing, of course, but also because of her communication skills and the way she conveys her passion for what she does. But I also admire her because she can hula hoop while playing the violin. It's an honor to have Hilary Hahn on today's Deutsche Grammophon International podcast series. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. This is the first time we've actually tried this. I mean, in, in these strange Corona times, we've all tried every medium we know how to be able to connect. This is the first time that we've tried a podcast via Zoom. I've been doing meetings and interviews by Zoom, but I have to say it took me a little while to get used to all the tech developments that are just part of daily life. I've been on a sabbatical for a year, and so I didn't have particular work interactions for the first six months of the pandemic. And then starting in September, I started to learn what everyone else had already figured out. So I got the benefit of learning what works, but at the same time, it is nice when things are in person. That's true. And we hope you come back very soon. The last time you were here was quite a few years ago, actually, with my orchestra. And Albert Meyer interviewed you in the Digital Concert Hall studio. <laughs> yes. Oh, I have a question for you. Is it possible to play French horn and hula hoop? I don't think so. You know what? We usually have a horn challenge at the end of our podcasts. And it would have been uh -huh. something I would have done for you here in the studio. I haven't tried <laughs> it yet. But as soon as I do, I will let you know, I promise. But I very much doubt it because... I just wonder if the horn would be in the same space or can you lift it? You could probably yeah, lift it. Yeah, you can it. lift the horn. You can do a bells up, you know, like we do in the orchestra when it's yeah. really loud. But it's just keeping the mouthpiece on your face. And I, I, I'm sorry that the, that the, that the <laughs> our viewers can't see us right now because we are, I'm sort of doing all Hillary's hula hoop movements. And um, yeah, I will, ha I will give it a go, I promise. But you know, that video went so totally viral, didn't it? It was a really popular video. And it's funny because Tuset is a really great duo. They educate at the same time that they share all the inside jokes with musicians. Like I, I, I find their humor really funny and I find their insights interesting. And I think a lot of people who are not musicians learn a lot about music and learn a lot about violin and technique and stuff like that through them. So we happened to connect through a comment I made on one of their posts on social media. And then we were trying to figure out what could we do? Like we met for coffee in New York and all that. And then, you know, what could we do together? Because they were doing a show. They were going to be in the place where I, where I was. And yeah, I just said, well, you know, can you guys hula hoop? And I wasn't sure what the answer would be. And they said, we can learn. <laughs> <laughs> you are a and, really good hula hooper. Oh my goodness. <laughs> because I had done a talent show years before where I hula hooped and played violin. Like I'd figured it out a long time ago, but I never had a venue for it. So they took it so many steps further and did like a group hula hoop challenge on stage in front of an audience. And it was well, four and a half million people saw that video. And what what you say, it, they they bring music maybe closer to people that really they watch it for a laugh, but then they might think, oh, she's really cool. Let me hear her latest album. And 
and things like that. And this is this is a personal passion of mine as well. It's like your mother telling you to eat your greens and you don't. So she <laughs> hides them in the lasagna to make them taste better, you know? <laughs> But yeah, I think I think, uh, you know, greens are healthy. Music is beautiful. You know, I think the the core of art and music is to connect people and whether they have things in common or not. And so anything where you can establish a sort of a, an emotional connection or a relationship to an artist or to a piece of music really helps the art connect and hit like hit in the soul where it can where it can really reach. We, we'll take that any way it comes, you know, that's just what we're all trying to do <laughs> as musicians, especially now during this pandemic. Well, welcome back from, from your sabbatical. That must have been putting out a new album is quite an intense way to come back after a sabbatical and also starting your 100 days practice challenge again. What day are you on? 48 today? Mm, it might be 50 today. I don't 50. know. I think yesterday was oh 49. Goodness. I'm not sure. Oh We're somewhere goodness. in the middle. I'm behind. <laughs> I have to start watching my violin practice videos again. <laughs> but that's really encouraged well, people to join in, hasn't it? Yeah, it's the fourth time I've done 100 days of practice on my social media. And what's interesting is I've always been kind of at odds with how to do music on Twitter. So I do my Instagram and Twitter. My handle is Violin Case. And I've done hundred days of practice, four times on Instagram. And the first time was in response to a visual art project and uh, artists were doing a hundred days of whatever their creative process was. And it was very clearly stated in the description of the project that it's about the process, not about the results. And I really loved that. And I love visual art, but I thought I can't, I can't really draw for a hundred days and post that on my account. You are visual art. (laughs) You're bowing on. Well, I didn't want to take like a a picture of myself. (laughs) But like, I just felt like, what is it that I do every day anyway, where I can get the feel of this project, but not be quite as literally part of it, um, just because that's not my, that's not my field of, of expertise. And I started doing practice and I thought people would be annoyed by it, but it turned out that... I hadn't thought about this before, but it was really clear to me as soon as I saw it starting to happen, that practice is really a taboo topic. You know, you're supposed to figure out everything you can't do on your own in a practice room and then come back to whatever it is, rehearsal, lesson, having improved um, and being sort of held to a standard in those cases. So there's just a lot of pressure, especially as a student. And when you actually put it all together, practice is a really communal thing. It's just that you are often on your own at that particular moment. But every musician and anyone who's ever taken any kind of music lessons has practiced. And so it's this thing that we can all understand and everyone has their own separate relationship to it. So apparently talking about it and showing it is helpful. And I can imagine if I had had a chance to see someone practice when I was a student or any time along the way, it would have been um, pretty, like, I guess not reassuring in the sense that it was an insecure thing, but like reassuring in the sense of community and 
understanding. Like we all have our ups and downs. We all sound pretty normal when we practice. It's it's like where you go with your practice that makes it a difference. Horn players love the idea of communal warm-ups. And I must admit, this is something which I really don't find too fun because it, as you say, it scares people. It's, it's scary to hear, but you haven't lived until you've heard a communal horn warm-up. But we're, we're a different what is breed. It? It's when a hundred people get together in a room and warm up together. Like, like at, a choir? Yeah, like at master classes and stuff. When I give master classes, they, they all want to warm up together and they say, and I play something and then they play it back. And it, you haven't lived until you heard one of those. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> oh, you, I, we got to invite you along to one of our horn. The horn community is really very, very, very tight. And that's why I'm always happy to see any sort of in, including, you know, inclusive things. And you started with this practice, 100 Days Practice, and so many people have, have taken that up. And, and I just love the way you inspire, especially the younger generations. I went to some of my colleagues in the Berlin Philharmonic yesterday at rehearsal, some of the violinists, and I said, listen, I'm interviewing Hillary tomorrow. What can you tell me about her? expecting, you know, the Berlin Philharmonic violinists, they're all incredible concert masters themselves. And I was expecting to say, oh, well, like this and that, and maybe not this sort. And they all said, with not one exception, they said, oh, she's such a hero. And and the young one said, she's my, she was my hero when I was a student. And it was so nice to hear Aww. they all had such, such lovely things to say about you. Or I just asked oh, the right ones. <laughs> I'm honored. That's wonderful to hear. <laughs> but isn't it fantastic to be a role model? Or is that is that a bit of a pressure as well? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I don't walk through life thinking, am I being a role model at this moment? But I think that I really relate to what it's like to be a young musician and a concert goer. I grew up going to concerts, and I was really fortunate to be introduced to artists backstage by some people I knew who were in the Baltimore Symphony where I where I grew up. And I saw how different artists acted off the stage in the sense that some artists were well soloists. I also got to know orchestra musicians, chamber musicians, and I saw all those different dynamics and really kind of understood the field earlier, I think, than a lot of students who are studying to be soloists just because I was around it. But yeah, I mean, some soloists were really gregarious. Some soloists were very quiet. Some were surrounded by people and some were very self-sufficient and some were really good with kids. Others were like, oh, you're cute. <laughs> and Which inspired you the most? Which, which, well, which type? I saw that pretty much all of them were really open to speaking with fans to speaking with young musicians and you know listening I was really impressed by how much the soloists when I think back on it like how much they actually asked me questions and listened to my answers and I think I got in my head that that is how you can honor another person who loves music but the thing that I think I learned the most from was one soloist who was not nice to people after the concert he made people wait for a really long time in the green room. He didn't see anyone backstage, which is fine. I mean, it's, it's your choice where you go. But he had people wait a long time in the green room. And then there, the usher came out and said, oh, you know, he's not going to be coming out after all. Thank you for coming. And then, oh, wait, he might come out in 15 minutes. And so we'd all waited a really long time. And then he finally came out and he said, 
well, I have a boxing match I want, I need to get to, and I don't have time to kiss babies or give speeches. Thank you all for coming, you know. And I was like, you're one of your heroes. It disappoints a little bit, doesn't it? It was just not necessary. I, I didn't feel personally slighted, but I definitely saw how everyone in the room was excited and willing to wait. And then he just kind of stomped all over people's hopes for no reason. He could have just been nice about it. And I think he thought he was being like star-like or cavalier or something like that. And in fact, it just was not a good feeling. And I told myself in that moment, if I ever have a chance to meet an audience, I'm going to stay until I see everyone. I'm going to be you know, welcoming. I'm going to make sure everyone feels important. And I think that that experience taught me a lot and helped me to appreciate what everyone else had been doing that was really nice. That's no mean feat in Asia and Japan with those lines that go out the door. <laughs> no, I mean, if they wait two hours in a line, I, I think I can sit on a chair and wait two hours for that. I absolutely agree with you. Well, I think people are going to be standing in the line for your next album, which has just been released on Deutsche Grammophon called Paris. And I know you've talked about this on videos and in the, in the press material, but a podcast audience is a little bit different. We, we, we need to hear it on the podcast. Can you just explain to us why your album is called Paris, but there's only one French composer on the track list? In a way, everything points back to Paris. We made the recording and then after the fact, it was clear that it was about Paris, despite anything we might have thought otherwise. It grew out of an artist residency I did with Radio France in 2018-19. And I worked a lot that season with Orchestre Philharmonique de Radio France. Miko Frank is the music director. And it was really, that residency was the culmination of more than two decades of work with that orchestra. I started working with them when I was in my teens, and then I just kept going back because we really liked working together. And because of the Parisian exclusivities, I also didn't wind up working with other Parisian orchestras. So that really is my home orchestra when I'm in Paris. Over the years, we worked on so many different pieces together, and I also worked with Miko outside of that orchestra so that we also knew how to work together. And Miko became music director. I continued to work with the orchestra with him. And when we did our first concert of the residency in the summer, magic was happening. It was just so clear this was a collaborative moment that I wanted to capture. By then, we knew that the Rao Tavara serenades would be premiered that season. And of course, Radio France records everything and broadcasts it. And so we were thinking about that a little bit. But then how can we also, after the moment of the premiere, get the music out to the broader world and really memorialize that that particular moment. So I called Miko after that after that first um, little festival tour we did and um, I said, Miko, I can't let go of this idea. Can we make a recording this season? <laughs> and anyone who has planned an orchestra season and a soloist season and a conductor season knows it is a commitment to put a recording into a season that's already planned. And we made it work. We started daydreaming, you know, what would we really love to record? And for me, I've always wanted to do Prokofiev one. And I've always wanted to 
explore it more with a French orchestra because for me, Prokofiev one is a Parisian concerto. I hadn't registered quite why, but it was premiered in 1923 in Paris. I always connected this piece with Paris, like at its core. And when I started playing Prokofiev one, I was in my teens. I've played it repeatedly. It's sort of a trademark and people have asked me to record it. There were times when I could have recorded it, but it needed for me the perfect moment within my work and my life and the perfect moment with colleagues and the perfect combination of repertoire to record with it. And when I thought about the collaboration that we were developing in that particular concert season, I really, really wanted to record the Chausson poem with this orchestra and with Miko because Miko has this sense of musical architecture that is both detail-oriented and really big in scope. So he can sort of supervise everyone's individual characters and merge them in a really great way. And then the orchestra, the uh, Philharmonique de Radio France, the way they play is so direct and personal. The colors, each instrument is allowed to have its own character and it's really one of those orchestras where the color and the expression enhance each other. So for Chausson, it's a piece where the soloist is really allowed to go as small as is possible on my instrument, which is not often the case in a concerto. Often the soloist has a sort of a leading or like a alternating role with the orchestra, but you don't have your full range. And so with the Chausson, I do. And then when I hit my maximum range, the orchestra takes it further. So every time we played that piece together, whether it was in rehearsal or in a session, I got goosebumps at some point. Historically speaking, when you look at the pieces, the Chausson was not premiered in Paris, but Chausson was a part of the Parisian artistic scene because of his his family sponsoring a lot of artists, and he also had organized some salons. He wrote the piece for Eugène Isai, the great Belgian violinist who premiered it outside of Paris, but then the Parisian premiere put Chausson on the map as a composer. My Violin was made in 1865 in Paris by Jean-Baptiste Fillon, who was alive at the same time that Chausson was. The Prokofiev premiered in Paris in 1923. Prokofiev straddled the French and Russian cultures and worked a lot with the Ballet Russe in Paris. The Raltavara we premiered in Paris right when the recording is. And so all of the repertoire, the whole collaboration, the idea for the record, it all came out of Paris. And that moment when we played in the summer, when I thought, uh, we have to do something with this. It was in a festival in France. So everything about the record, it turns out, except for me, is Parisian. And it's turned into <laughs> a bit of a tribute as well, because uh, Ratovara and Miko Frank, they were very good friends. And and you actually didn't know, did you, that this, this manuscript existed until it was shown to Miko after the funeral? Or, is, or how does the story go? It's a bit of a relay story, actually. It's like one person says something to another, who says something to another, who says something to another. But one of the prior engagements I did with Miko and Philharmonique de Radio France was 
to play the Raul Tavara violin concerto. And I knew that Miko and Raul Tavara were very, very close. Miko is essentially, I think, the most direct artistic ambassador for Raul Tavara's music and performance. And I had also commissioned Raul Tavara to write something for my encores project for the 27 encores, and it's called Whispering. So we had our own separate histories with that composer and his music. But when I got to play the violin concerto with Miko, I just, I had this thought. And after rehearsal, I said, do you think he would write, we were trying to program the next, the next concert already. I was like, do you think we could commission him to write another violin concerto? Because I would love to have more of this. And Miko said, well, Anyohani is not feeling, Anyohani is Rao Tavara's first name. He's not feeling very good. Like he's ill right now. And I don't think I can talk to him about it, but I'll be seeing him in a couple months. And if the opportunity arises, I will bring it up because I also want to know this. (laughs) And I didn't hear anything else. So I assumed that the conversation had not, had not happened. Then Miko actually did see Rao Tavara and did speak with him about this. They discussed the idea of a suite of serenades because Raul Tavara had been thinking about that format and wanting to explore it, but he didn't want to write another of something he'd already done. So he wrote a concerto. He didn't want to write a second violin concerto. Yeah. So they decided that's, that's what the commission would be. Miko went to uh, start the process of the logistics of a commission and it, you know, it all takes a while. And then the composer, he passed away which was devastating, I think, for so many people, for the music community, for the Finnish artistic community, for Miko personally. And Miko went to the funeral. After the funeral, Raul Tavara's widow took Miko back to the study and showed him this manuscript, which was two serenades for violin and orchestra. It was pretty much complete, but at one point in the orchestration, the handwriting stops and all the staves are then empty after that. So the first serenade was completely orchestrated. The violin part was done. The second serenade was almost done. And there was a sketch, which was his normal way of composing. So there was a sketch, which he was working off of to complete it. Miko knew immediately, like, this is it. Because also the serenades were titled in French and Finnish, as opposed to English and Finnish, which was Rautavara's normal way of, of titling pieces. And the serenades were called Pour mon amour and Pour la vie. And so the first one was was clearly the way Miko um, knew Raul Tavara. It was clearly for Raul Tavara's wife. And the second one, the unfinished one for life, is Miko felt like that that was on purpose. Like it was meant to be two. And Raul Tavara somehow knew this was it. And that normally Raul Tavara worked with themes of spirituality, but also with a dark side. And the fact that these titles were on the more expansive and positive association side of things really said to Miko that it was meant to be a two serenade piece and that this was complete. So then Miko went and commissioned Kalevi Aho, a great Finnish composer in his own right and a former pupil of Raul Tavara, to complete the, the score for the, uh, for the orchestra part. And that's what we premiered. At the end of the premiere, 
usually a composer is there to take a bow and it, it was very noticeable. The composer's community was there and we all had gone through this experience of very, like, I think respectfully and lovingly preparing this piece for its premiere. This would close out Raul Tavares catalog and it would be the last new notes ever to be heard. It's like his from requiem, this composer. I guess. I mean, it's kind a, of. Yeah. 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 And when we finished, it was really clear, like this was both an end and a beginning because now the catalog was complete and could be out in the world. Like everything was now, the, the story was written and now it could be out. And I think that was a really big transitional moment. Miko held the score up to the heavens to acknowledge the composer and we took Aww, our bows and it was bumps. a really beautiful, yeah. really beautiful moment. And I get goosebumps thinking about it because yeah. it's such a significant moment and to be part of it is really special. I mean, you're carrying on the composer's voice when their voice is no longer actively speaking, but in music, we have a legacy. We carry things on for other people. So that process is, is super, That's it's super huge and super um, meaningful. And it's wonderful that you could put them all, all three of them on the album, these three pieces that are so important to you. But but the Rautavara really, that that just rounds up. And it sounds like the way you describe it, it was it's just such a harmonious collaboration, you know, from that, that young teenager that ate pizza on the roof of uh, looking <laughs> over the rooftops of Paris to, to playing yep. uh, Rautavara's, I think, it, it, like his requiem, you know, to be there and present and, and, and transporting this music, you know, up to the soul where, wherever it might be it's -hmm. it's it's beautiful and uh, and so is the album and congratulations on that and thanks so much for your time today on the podcast (laughs) usually on the podcast if you'd been here and pre-covid you would have had to play my horn because everyone we that's definitely not covid safe (laughs) definitely not we don't do that in covid time so everyone who's been on the podcast since covid times i think the last one to do it was viking or olafsson he was the last person to grace my horn with a horn challenge but we've had to think up different ones but I think oh. we already have this one. You're going to turn it around and make me take it one day. As soon as I find a hula hoop, I will have a go <laughs> to try and imitate you playing the horn. Let me, let me try something. <laughs> Hang on. I learned how to do like... Okay, I can sort of do okay. like air for, through for your dear listeners. I, I can see Hillary doing this, but <laughs> you trying. you might have thought it was me. But um, that would, because it was such a professional buzz. Can you buzz a tune? Can you buzz like your first no. tune? Your first tune on the see. violin was "Twinkle Twinkle Little Star," and it would, if I buzzed it, it would go. Wow. Okay, have a go. <laughs> Really dug myself in here. Let's see. Uh, Okay, let me try again. That was pretty good. (laughs) If if anyone just tuned in at this second, they must be wondering what on earth is going on on this podcast. (laughs) Bravo. I am a violinist. Let's just put that down on record. (laughs) That was pretty good. And I must also say the visual aspect for our listeners, Hillary has a perfect embouchure. (laughs) 
<laughs> she really does. Okay, so oh my you goodness. be warned. When you come back, you are getting a freshly sterilized mouthpiece, and we okay. are going to we are going to get you to play Twinkle Twinkle on the horn because that was your very first tune on the violin after having okay. learned how to bow. That was your very first yes. lesson, right? That was so cute. Yes. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much. Thank you. I will let you bow out. Thank you so much for joining us. And dear listeners, thank you for joining us. And we'll see you next time on the Deutsche Grammophon International Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.